A woman looked out the window of her home and was horrified to see her German shepherd shaking the life out of a neighbor's pet rabbit. Her family had been quarreling with these neighbors. This was certainly going to make matters worse. So she grabbed a broom, ran outside, pummeling the pooch until he dropped the rabbit, now covered with dog spit and extremely dead. What was she going to do? The woman lifted the rabbit with the end of the broom and brought it into the house. She dumped the lifeless body into the bathtub, turned on the shower. When the water running off the rabbit was clean, she rolled him over and rinsed the other side. Now she had a plan. She found her hairdryer, blew the rabbit dry. Using an old comb, she groomed the rabbit until he looked pretty good. Then when the neighbor wasn't looking, she hopped over the fence, snuck across the backyard, and propped him up in his cage. No way was she going to take the blame for this thing. About an hour later, she heard screams coming from the neighbor's yard. She ran outside, pretending she didn't know what was going on. Her neighbor came running to the fence. All the blood had drained from her face. Our rabbit, our rabbit, she blubbered. He died two weeks ago, and we buried him, and now he's back. <laughs> Let's be fair. Not everyone understands resurrection, do they? And even many of us who identify as Christians and attend church weekly, and some of us who even know what a flannel graph is, perhaps have glossed over the resurrection of Jesus. As something maybe we just bring our friends to hear on Easter. Well, as you may know, we treat every Sunday and perhaps every day at Church of the Valley as Easter, don't we? Mike and Daniel agree. Because he has risen. And today we're going to talk about why we could possibly believe in such a miraculous event. Now, generally as a church, we study books of the Bible, verse by verse, passage by passage, so we can do our best to help reveal God's character and perspective of this world through his complete and holy scriptures. Because if we're not going to teach the word of God, what are we going to teach? Today, it'll be a little different as we continue our emphasis and value series, as you saw the video, where we're making known what we value as a community and what are some distinct emphasis that we have that, and what our perspectives are that make Church of the Valley, Church of the Valley. Last week, we began with the heart as our emphasis, which is the gospel. The gospel of grace. And we use this loose definition. The gospel is the redemptive plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation revealed in the life, the death, the resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And we began with that definition because many times we talk about the gospel, we might be referring to a type of music. Think Sister Act. Or the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are known as the gospels, plural. Now, those four letters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they document the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. But the gospel message is that his life, his death, his resurrection really means that sinners, that's us, can become saints and not have a chapel built with our name at the front of it, but that we understand that before God, we're made right because of what Jesus has accomplished. Not by trying really hard to be really good, but by God coming to earth and exchanging his life for ours. But with this gospel message that we emphasize here at Church of the Valley is a message that is consistent throughout all of Scripture. But there is a piece that tends to not be emphasized when it comes to sharing this redemptive message. Now, for years, in different places, before I committed to Jesus Christ, I would hear gospel presentations at events or on Easter or at Christmas Eve services that I got guilted into attending. 
And the preacher or person sharing their testimony would stand up and explain the difference that God had made in their lives. And then quote a verse that sounded like, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Anyone know what that one was? Church people. And then there would be an explanation of how your sins could be forgiven if you believed that Jesus died for you and you lived happily ever after is generally how it ended. Does that sound about right? Has anyone else heard this message somewhere? Yeah, Laura has. Okay, Jason, good. Now, do you feel like anything's missing from what I just described? Oh, the resurrection. You guys have been trained. That's very good. And today we're going to emphasize the mind, the head. It will be informational. It will be apologetic. But for a Christian, apologetics that don't cause our faith to be strengthened and deepened is just information that makes us obese spiritually because we aren't exercising what we're learning. Apologetics exist to remove excuses and reveal a rebellious heart. The reality is that many people just don't want to believe. But I'm here to present what I believe is the evidence for why we can believe in Christianity. So why is the resurrection so important? Well, a few things. If Jesus didn't resurrect, then we're still in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, Paul says. Let's be real. What an absolute waste of time of following Jesus is if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You know, the Niners are going to start to play on Sunday mornings. So why even come here if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? So why do we pursue Christ if he didn't rise from the dead? Why pursue Christ if he didn't really pursue us after his death on the cross? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we believe in a dead God a dead savior, a dead teacher, and our faith is one like the rest of the world that immortalizes a person and their teaching but does not have any evidence to support their belief. But the Christian faith is not built or based on wishful thinking or a bunch of teachings on how to be a better person. The Christian faith is built on the foundation of a resurrected king who defeated sin and death through his resurrection from the dead. So why do you believe Why do any of us believe in this supposed resurrection? Because maybe we feel it in our hearts? Sure, some people believe for the reason that they just feel it. But at least for me, that isn't enough. How I feel doesn't dictate my reality. Is it because other people believe in it? Well, no, that's not my reason at least, because people believe that the world is still flat, or the world is flat, that the moon landing was staged and Tom Cruise is tall, and all scientifically have been disproven. Do we believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead because the Bible tells us so? Well, yes and no. Wait, what? That kind of sounds like circular reasoning, doesn't it? I believe the Bible because the Bible says it's believable? Yeah, not that. The Bible does the best job of explaining the resurrection, which we will unpack, and you can do with it what you want, but I first came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus through information that I found apart from the Bible. But then as I read what was said about the resurrection in the Word of God, in the Bible, that I did not believe in at first, the Bible actually supported what I learned from outside sources better than anything else, and did by far the best job of describing the why of the resurrection. 
So let's look at a passage that directly addresses this. Karen read it, which is also considered one of the first things that was put into the New Testament because this message from this passage we're going to study was the original message of the apostles that was being shared from day one after Jesus' resurrection. So here's what it says. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, believers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you've received, which you've taken your stand. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he wants to remind other believers of the foundational message of the gospel. Last week, I received a text from a leader thanking me that I taught on the gospel because they needed to hear it again. That's a leader in the church. Church, I don't care who you are. You need to hear the good news. You need to be reminded. You need to be told how loved you are and how unable you are to work your way to God and yet how good God is to work his way to us. So maybe if you're over the gospel because you think there are deeper things to learn or more important things to focus on, Our worship lead said it best, Malik, he said this at Pete's last week when we were picking songs, if the gospel makes you cringe, you probably don't understand the gospel. It's true. In fact, Paul makes the point that it is this message that these believers in Corinth received and took their stand on. This passage may be one of the most preached and familiar passages that I I know, and just the beginning of this verse, or this passage, where Paul makes known that there is a stand to take And it is in this gospel message, this finished work of Christ, this great exchange, as we've called it, this redemptive plan of God. Church, we at Church of the Valley take our stand on this gospel. And that might not make us unique, but it's what we value and emphasize. And being dead set on making things about this good news, about Jesus in this way, well, it's going to be a little less popular than whatever is trending in Christian churches lately. But what if, this is rhetorical, but you can say, "Uh uh-huh, but what if being obedient to the convictions from the scriptures revealed by the Holy Spirit is more important to our spiritual well-being than being relevant in culture today? What if? Verse two, by this gospel, this good news, you are saved. Salvation has come. If you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. By this gospel, you are saved if. Does that word if scare the H-E double hockey sticks out of anyone else? If you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. If you are fastened to this truth of the gospel, if it is what you justify yourself by, rather than your ability to keep the law or being a really good person. Ironically, the thing you can do to be saved is to hold firmly to the one who saves you. That's what you can do. But it's really not a, I'm going to try really hard to be stuck to Jesus. It's a daily walking with him as you do it imperfectly. Can we be honest about this? You will then begin to see that holding firmly to Jesus takes no effort at all because you're doing what you're doing through grace rather than through effort. Paul even says otherwise, if you haven't or you don't do this, you have believed in vain. You have claimed to have trusted the gospel, but instead you have trusted yourself but claim to give God credit. 
Okay, those two verses set up the original message of the New Testament from the apostles, and here's what we're very familiar with. This is not news to a lot of us, but man, maybe we can see it a little bit differently today because we exist because Jesus is alive. For what I received, verse 3, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This message is of first importance. Paul states, which is pretty important considering the possibility that Christianity 2,000 years later seems to value other things as central or as first importance. Paul says it's the gospel. Paul, who received this message directly from the Lord himself on the road to Damascus, here's what it says in Acts 9. We studied this a few months back. He said, Luke writes, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul was Paul's Jewish name. Saul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, Christ replied. Paul learned from the Lord that his death wasn't just martyrdom for a set of beliefs, but a death on a cross for the sins of mankind. And he received and he passed this on. This good news to others, which is really what the book of Acts documents throughout all of it. Now, I do want to mention that Jesus' death for the sins of mankind is the only faith message where God doesn't expect you to pay for your failings, your sins, your transgressions, yourself, but actually takes on skin and dies in the place of his people. But this leads me to what is called, and this is where I'm going to get a little nerdy, and it might feel a little bit like a seminar, and I apologize, but I'm going to have inflection in my voice, and I'm going to expect amens, and does anyone ever say an amen in a seminar? No! Here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the minimal facts approach, which is a smaller set of facts that scholars, even skeptical ones, agree upon when it comes to circumstances around the supposed resurrection of Jesus. Now, I lead a ministry called Compelled. It's an evangelism training that we studied a few months ago here at Church of the Valley. And for everyone who attended the third week, we were given 13 facts that honestly make a case that it requires more faith to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead than it does to believe that he did. But today, for time's sake, and honestly for our attention span's sake, I hope to break it down even more with just five of those facts that are recognized as true statements and yet none of them are supernatural based on any single one fact. But why do this? Because at Church of the Valley, we emphasize the reality that God isn't afraid of our questions and our doubts. I've heard too many stories, even from some of you, where I've heard people say, well, I was struggling with this thing about God, and I went to a pastor, I went to a leader, and someone in a church that I was at at one point just told me I had to have more faith. Shut up, no. You need to engage with the true God and actually look at the facts. It doesn't mean you have to have more faith. It just means that God will be in the process of drawing you and you have to be willing to look at the facts with an open mind. So, what does the Bible point to? Well, I believe the Bible points to a resurrected Messiah that we can put our hope and our trust in. But here's the cool thing about that. We don't have to check our minds at the door. We don't have to close our eyes to history and we really do have evidence in history to put our faith into. So the first one, it's pretty obvious. It's not very disputed. It's actually not even close to supernatural. Here's the first one. Minimal fact number one. Jesus died by crucifixion. 
This point was something that I learned from extra biblical resources that pointed out that what was acceptable apart from the scriptures to believe when it came to Jesus' supposed resurrection. Because honestly, you couldn't have a resurrected Jesus if he didn't die, right? Right. Now, there are historians like Josephus, Tacitus, and Pliny the Younger, I said younger, not elder, Pliny the Younger, just to mention a few, all without a bias of the Christian faith, and they wrote about this guy named Christus, or the Christ, some of what they mentioned was within a lifetime of Jesus's life on earth, and they spoke about his followers and what they believed about him and that he was sentenced to death on a Roman cross. So Jesus's death on a cross is not just some made-up story about a peasant from Nazarene, but an actual known and recorded fact in history that brings up some questions. Like, why would a peasant from Nazarene be put on a Roman cross? Well, the Bible points out blasphemy and insurrection are the accusations made against Jesus, which does make cultural sense to why Jesus would be hung on a cross like a thief or a murderer. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, it says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what the Bible says. But Paul writes that the original me message of the Christian faith was, which is after the, Jesus died on the cross, was that he rose again. But before that, he was buried. Yet there were some questionable circumstances around Jesus's burial, like that he did not have enough money to afford his own grave. So a Pharisee named Joseph of Arimathea asked to take Jesus's body down and lay it in his own grave. Now in John 19, 38 through 42, it points this out, John 19, 38 through 42, but I don't have the passage up there because it's super long. But it points this out in the New Testament that Jesus was not buried in his own grave. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But in Isaiah 53, verse 9, 700 years before Jesus was even born to Mary, it says he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. The wicked being the thieves he hung on the cross with and the rich being the tomb in which his body lay. But that brings us to another minimal fact that is a pretty big deal. Minimal fact number two that scholars and skeptics agree upon. The tomb was found empty a few days later. Why is that a big deal? Well, you don't normally bury alive people. That's one thing. But beyond that, he laid in a grave for a while, according to the scriptures. And while he may have been buried to this day, we don't actually know exactly where he was buried. There are assumptions there are some people that like give out little, this is where Jesus was buried stickers, which honestly, they're not sure. You know why? And I think this is a pretty good argument because he didn't lay in the grave for very long, three days. Now the Bible teaches us that the disciples were so convinced that Jesus was dead that they ran away and they hid because they were afraid for their own lives. That's what the Bible says, which brings us to one of the most assumed and yet pointless arguments about Jesus' body being stolen by the disciples. But I'll let you wait a few moments uh, on why I think that's a dumb argument. All right. Now, I'd also like to point out that Paul states that Jesus was raised to life according to the scriptures. Here's the thing. Paul doesn't mean the New Testament that we're so familiar with because what he is currently writing is the first thing that was documented in the sense of the New Testament, he's speaking about the 
early scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And I read this last week before the sermon, but let me show you one of the few places that Old Testament makes known that the resurrection was foretold. Isaiah 53, 10, 700 years before Jesus was born, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And that isn't the only place in the Old Testament, but I wanted to give us an example of one that doesn't seem to be too difficult to interpret or understand. Now, what's the big deal with the tomb being empty? Well, if it weren't, we probably wouldn't be celebrating Jesus as a risen savior if we could all go worship around his dead body which other religions tend to do when it comes to their messiahs, which I think is kind of weird. But I also want to state the obvious. An empty tomb by itself proves nothing. An empty tomb could just mean that the body was moved or that the silly disciples went to the wrong tomb. And while I don't want to spend any time attempting to persuade anyone on how ludicrous those two theories are, I'll say this. We believe Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years later, not just because of an empty tomb, but because of an empty tomb and something else. Now, Paul's going to point out that something else that's a pretty big deal if you pair it with the fact that the tomb was found empty. Verse 5, and he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, this was Peter's Jewish name, to Peter, and then to the twelve. So an empty tomb by itself proves nothing. But an empty tomb with some eyewitnesses claiming they saw him, that starts to build a case. Imagine I died. Aw. Imagine I was buried. Aw. And you went to my gravesite to talk to me, and as you walked up, to, you noticed that my gravesite had been dug up, and you looked into the grave, and I was not there. Would your first inclination be, well, obviously Tim rose from the dead? Of course not. But an empty tomb and some sightings, that starts to build a case. So Paul points out he appeared to Peter and then the rest of the 12, but according to the biblical account from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who were the first people to find the empty tomb and see Jesus alive? Who knows? The ladies, all the single ladies. According to Matthew 28, the women. So while Paul points out that Peter and the 12 saw Jesus, which is true, even before that, Mary saw him. So why not state this in this message of 1 Corinthians 15? Well, in the first century, and hear me, I love women. I have, I don't even know how, do I have five in my house? I think I have five in my house now. Wow. In the first century, women's testimony were not acceptable in court. And yet the gospel writers all say women were the first to find Jesus alive. Why would they write that if that didn't happen? The better answer is the reason they wrote that is because that's actually what happened. So you have these disciples, they're depressed because their rabbi who they believed to be their Messiah had died and then they found an empty tomb and then the next fact, minimal fact number three, scholar and skeptic agree upon, the disciples claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. Doesn't say they did, just says that they claimed that they saw Jesus alive. Again, these facts aren't supernatural. These are just what people know to be true. The big deal is that historically it is known that the disciples believed that Jesus had rose from the dead. And that wouldn't come from an empty tomb. But how do we know for sure that they really believed that they saw him? 
because each of them was martyred for their belief and unwilling to recant when threatened with imprisonment and or murder. It's one thing to risk your life. It's another thing to be killed because you knew something about eternity that meant you were ultimately gonna be just fine because of what you experienced. In the famous words of Paul to the church in Philippi, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For the disciple who had seen Jesus alive after he died, they understood that his life could and should be lived for Christ. But they also knew because Jesus defeated death that death could not hold them if they were threatened to be killed. So the disciples believed that Jesus was alive because they saw what they believed was him and also that he wasn't in the tomb. And historically, the book of Acts, the book we're going to get back into in the fall, is one that points out what these disciples who were appointed apostles did and said. And something revolutionary happened to me. To, or, I'm sorry, something revolutionary happened to make them go from hiding because Jesus had died to proclaiming the fact that they believed that they saw him alive and they fear, fearlessly, without worry of persecution, without worry of imprisonment, without worry of physical harm. Why? Because they were convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. And this wasn't dishonesty or a hope that maybe they'd save some face because they had kept talking that Jesus was the Messiah because liars make terrible martyrs. They really do. And you will not die for something you are sure is not true. And they were willing to die for this and they had firsthand experiences that tell me that they knew what they were talking about. Now, the apostles knew firsthand if this message of Jesus rising from the dead was true or not, and their response was to be radically changed. The Christian movement did not evolve over time. People saw or heard that Jesus was alive, and that changed everything for how they viewed the world in Jerusalem in, the, in 33 AD, and they understood that now the God of their ancestors actually came in the person and the work of Jesus. Some actually understood this. Verse six, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Not only was this the message of the original church, but most of it, if not everyone in Jerusalem at the time, had either heard about it or seen it themselves that a man who was crucified was now walking around town. Now, if a couple of us corroborate, did I say that right? I just speak for a living. If we say that a story is true, a couple of us can do that. We can be in cahoots. We could try to get people to believe a particular thing. But if over 500 people see and experience the same thing, that's not a fable, that's not a hallucination, that's not a mirage, that is an event. Now, let's imagine that I claim to be Steph Curry, okay? I mean, he's not that much taller than me, because, well, according to when I got my life insurance test, I was six feet, so I'm very excited about that. <laughs> but let's, let's claim that I, or let's say that I was trying to tell people that I was Steph Curry, and let's imagine I went to the Antarctic, and I found some Eskimos who were without the internet, 
with, or without any type of news outlets, and I, I wanted to try to convince them that I was Stephen Curry, that I play in the NBA, that I'm probably in the top 10 best players of all time, maybe one day in the top five greatest players of all time, maybe, that I hold pretty much every three-point record uh, in the NBA, that I just won my fourth NBA championship in eight years. Now, to someone who doesn't know better, maybe an Eskimo in the Antarctic that has no news outlets or social media or uh, can get cable or, or streaming, yeah, maybe I could persuade them. Now, what if I was on a basketball court and I saw a bunch of kids with number 30 on their back on jerseys in Oakland and I started to tell them that I was Steph Curry? What do you think they're gonna say? Yeah, no, you're not, moron. I'd be laughed off the court. They'd think I was crazy. What's the difference? In the Bay Area, we know better. Same thing is true in Jerusalem. If this story was told somewhere else, maybe some people would believe it, but it started in Jerusalem where everyone had seen it themselves. Verse seven. Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Kind of a big deal, don't you think? According to the biblical accounts, Jesus' family did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah prior to his resurrection. John 7, verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Well, not only does the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, say this, but scholars and skeptics agree in the fourth minimal fact. James, the skeptical brother of Jesus, converted to Christianity after he believed he saw Jesus alive after his death. You guys know where I'm going with this. How many of you have siblings? How hard would it be for that sibling to convince you that they were God? Verse eight. And last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Does anyone get a Popeye vibe? I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Minimal fact number five that scholars and skeptics agree upon. Paul went from foe to friend of Christianity after he claimed that he had met the risen Jesus. Why is this such a huge deal? Because Paul was in, in his own admission, a persecutor of the church of the living God. He refused to believe that Jesus was actually the God that he had heard about. And it would require some very big experience or evidence to change his mind that Jesus was who he claimed that he was. But according to Paul's testimony, he came in contact with the risen Christ. And God removed what was like scales from his eyes. And for the first time, he could see, not religion, not morality, but he could see Jesus for who he is. And Paul entered into a relationship with him. So the resurrection, while having some seriously good evidence, in my opinion, requires one to critically think, to wrestle with the evidence in light of the arguments, like, I don't know, maybe the disciples stole the body. Okay, and then what? Decided to give up their life proclaiming a lie that they were sure was a lie? Probably not. 
Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Well, at some point, they would actually point out that they went to the wrong tomb. And then they go to the wrong tomb, he's not there, and then all of a sudden they believe Jesus rose from the dead? Probably not. Maybe Jesus didn't really die. Well, apart from the fact that scholars, even skeptical ones, will concede that there is no way that his life was spared from crucifixion, and a Roman soldier's job was to verify that he was dead, and if he was wrong, the the guy who was supposed to check him would be killed, Paul wouldn't have for a second believed in a beat-up, bleeding, and broken Savior. He knew for a fact that Jesus had been killed, and he found he met a resurrected Jesus. Well, maybe the argument is just simply Christianity just evolved over hundreds of years. Well, no, this gospel message that you're reading in 1 Corinthians 15 was the original message that made people repent and believe that a carpenter's son was actually God's son, beaten, broken, and resurrected to make messed up people right with God. The reality is, I'm going to say it nice, no, I'm not. The reality is the arguments are stupid. They're stupid. They are so stupid. But the average Christian, and definitely the average non-Christian, has no idea how much evidence in history there is to trust that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Why are Christians looked at as the silly ones when there's so much evidence on the side of a person who actually looks into the resurrection? And that is why we have faith. Not because your pastor believes this, This is why we have faith that is not built on some teachings, but is built on the bedrock that Jesus is alive, that he rose, and that we are in faith in him will rise ourselves one day. Here's how we end 1 Corinthians 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? He's asking this question. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Paul points out how worthless our faith is if Jesus lays in a grave. Here's what I love about this message. Okay, I'm just gonna get really honest. It makes some of us really uncomfortable. Because if he actually rose from the dead, that changes everything. That means he's not just someone we can kind of acknowledge on Sundays. He's actually a God who is real. He is living. He is active. He's involved in our lives. He's given us his spirit. We get to walk with God. And we don't just hope this is true. We have evidence that this is true. This is an uncomfortable message. And if there's evidence of it, if it's actually true, it changes everything and a hush goes over the crowd. But our faith is in something that has evidence, historical arguments. And the reality is that Jesus is not just like any other Messiah or great teacher. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. He is the one that the angels sing, and I'm not going to sing it, but the angels will, holy, holy, holy. Jesus is my justification. He is my identification. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my God. Why? Because he has risen. And so we emphasize this as a community of believers because the very words of God emphasize this as justification for the believer's faith. Look, Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
1 Peter 1.3, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 6.4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So friends, I want to invite you to see what a big deal the resurrection of Jesus is for each and every single one of us. And generally, people don't want to hear it. You don't have to believe in something that's a myth. You don't have to put trust in something that isn't tested or tried. Our faith, which is our belief and trust being exercised, is not one that we're just hoping is true, but one who has proven himself in history. For those of us who are willing to find the breadcrumbs in the evidence that leads us to a risen Savior who loves us and offers us a relationship with him that is eternal and forever. So friends, I ask you to not do what I used to do and was called out by a mentor. If you're going to share the gospel, never, ever, ever leave Jesus in the grave because he is risen. Worship team, if you join me up here and get prepared for a time of response. A pastor was attempting to tell the resurrection story in a children's sermon. He asked the question, what were Jesus's first words to the disciples after he was raised from the dead? Before he was able to give an answer, a little girl raised her hand high in the sky, kind of picture Jovi, high in the sky. So the pastor let her answer. I know, she said. Ta-da. <laughs> May we worship this God who proved himself through the resurrection from the dead. And may we glory in his ta-da. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you that there is evidence in history that really makes us have to wrestle with, are you real? God, I am way too prideful and way too quick to just want things to be simple or figured out before I'm willing to do anything, God. And yet you keep bringing me back to the resurrection in your word. And so God, as a church, we emphasize this. We emphasize this because we want this to be a place where people can be on the same page when it comes to who is the gospel. It's you, Jesus, living perfectly, dying sacrificially and rising victoriously and ascending. And one day you'll come back. And so God, we wait expectantly. We live with the reality that the resurrection, I believe is true. It is tested. It is historical. God, there's way too many things biting for the thing that we make Christianity about. May this goodness of the gospel be of first importance. And may we live as such, knowing that because he rose, there is a promise and a reality that we will rise as well. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I, even as I was teaching, I was starting to realize like, I came to faith as an apologist, meaning it first hit my mind before it ever hit my heart. And I think there's, there's a part of me that is constantly wrestling with the reality that God's the one that saves. We don't. 
And so we can state the facts, we can preach the gospel, we can live in such a way that hopefully uh, is uh, endearing to other people and makes them inquisitive and want more. But the reality is, unless the Lord removes the veil, no one sees it. And I am grateful that I know some things about the resurrection that maybe the average person growing up in the church or maybe the average person in the world doesn't know. It is There is factual things, there are arguments that can be wrestled with, but the reality is, at the end of the day, only the Lord can make us truly understand that. And so if you hear this message or you share this message with someone and you're frustrated because they don't, aren't as confident as maybe you are, don't be because it's the Lord who does the work and he's the one who draws and he's the one who makes a difference. All right, with that, I've made you stand too long. God, we thank you for Jesus and what he's accomplished and the reality that he is alive. May we live in the ta-da. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.